mean, you're going to see fairly significant changes coming out of it. I think education is going to be different coming out of it. I think healthcare is going to be different coming out of it. I think our food delivery system is going to be different. We're going to we're going to make changes. That was Governor Bob Kerry, former governor and U.S. senator from the state of Nebraska. Governor Kerry is confident that we'll see substantial changes in response to the COVID pandemic across many sectors of our society, including healthcare. Governor Kerry has a wide range of experiences, including being an officer in SEAL Team 1 and a recipient of the Medal of Honor. We covered lessons he has learned from his time as governor and U.S. Senator. He's an experienced board member, and he provided excellent perspective on the responsibilities of a lead director during a crisis and guidelines for relating to the CEO. Governor Kerry spoke about the coronavirus being with us for the foreseeable future, which will change our lifestyles. Let's listen. This virus is not going to disappear. We're not going to eliminate it. It's not going to, there's not going to be a, a signing ceremony of unconditional surrender. It's going to be with us, and so we got to figure out how to uh, live with it. And I think one of the things is that we do is to make sure that supply chain is reliable. He believes that we must develop a reliable supply chain for PPE, similar to that developed by the Defense Department. I'm delighted to welcome Governor Bob Carey to the microphone. Well, welcome to the podcast, Governor. Thanks, Gary. Well, I'm pleased to have you at this microphone for sure. Why don't we get right into it? And sure. the first topic that I'd love to explore with you is the role of a governor during a crisis. And we've seen uh, many governors in the 60 to 70 percent approval rating as of now. So why do you think that the governors are so well thought of across the country, Bob? Well, I mean, they're first of all, they're home and they have a significant amount of authority when we have a crisis. And you see it all the time. It can be a crisis of, caused by weather, a flood or a tornado or because they have authority over the guard. But People look to the governor, even when they don't have authority, they look to the governor and, and typically grant that governor moral authority to help them understand what's going on. And the governor, again, may not have a statutory authority over employers, but the employers will look to the governor as somebody not just with authority to talk, but they look to the governor and say, look, if, uh, this is what we need. This is what our needs are. So it's a unique situation, by the way. And one thing, Gary, uh, in this, this COVID-19 pandemic, oftentimes people say, well, how come we're not like South Korea or Singapore or something like that? Well, because in 1787, when our constitution was written, the states retained a substantial amount of authority over decision making from education to health care to a whole range of things. They've got authority. There's nothing comparable in Korea to the states. And it is true there are times when it makes it difficult for decision-making, but most of the time what it does is gives you a variety of different uh, decision-making, some of them good, some of them bad, and, and typically the governors learn from each other. They associate, and they're back and forth talking about, okay, what are you doing to make something work? So I think it's a, it's a genius political arrangement, but it's different than any other country. Right. During the time that you were Nebraska governor, what did you feel your most important responsibility was? Well, I think it's trying to answer the question, what's going on? So as an example, I came into office. In fact, I got elected as a result of a economic recession that began in the late 1970s with inflation. And when the chairman of the Federal Reserve broke inflation by tightening the money supply, we had a lot of farms that went broke because they had borrowed money and put up their land as collateral and commodity prices were down. It was an economic recession. So explaining and trying to understand that, not 
mean by sitting on a mountaintop, but by listening to people, talking to experts and trying to get a sense of what the problem was and trying to get a, a good sense of what the solution was. I would say it's the most important the governor has to do. Now, there's all kinds of state agencies you have to fund and you have to appoint judges and you have to make difficult decisions on pardon boards. But I think the key thing is trying to answer the question, what is going on right now and what do we need to do in order to reach that point that we say we want to reach, which is a better life for our children and our grandchildren. How tightly does the state emergency powers that the governor is in control of, how tightly does that need to be coordinated with the U.S. as a practical matter? First of all, it's almost automatically coordinated as a result of the Guard. The Guard has, is partially controlled by the governor, the National Guard, and partially controlled by the Department of Defense. So if the president nationalizes the Guard, all of a sudden the president of the United States as commander-in-chief has full authority. So it's, it's in most disasters, you've got a significant amount of automatic coordination going on between the Department of Defense and the governor's office through the Guard. But there are other agencies become important. The Corps of Engineers becomes enormously important. The Bureau of Reclamation becomes important. The FEMA is enormously important. So there's a substantial amount of coordination goes on, even if, let's take the Small Business Administration. I didn't have any authority over the SBA. But if we had a national disaster, and we had a couple, we have a national disaster, the SBA becomes very, very important. So we don't coordinate, but we have to, our economic development people have to understand what are the rules that the SBA is using, because oftentimes people will come to the state to get questions answered. And the more questions we can answer, the better job the, the feds are going to be able to do to help us. Well, one of the key issues now, you referred to it in the, your terrific op-ed editorial in today's Wall Street Journal, but that was the balance between the state economies and the health of the people, how would a governor parse through that? First of all, be prepared to make mistakes and be honest when you make a mistake and as much as possible, get all the other stakeholders to buy into a presumption that we are going to make mistakes. When we make a mistake, don't blame each other, make adjustments and move on. Because if you don't do that, what happens is that the process shuts down as everybody's pointing a finger at each other, trying to trying to lay the blame off on somebody else, as opposed to, we've got a flood, we've got a tornado, we've got a disaster, we've got to get building. And the good news is, I didn't mention this, this is the most important part of this, in a disaster, boy, people really pull together. I always say this, a tornado hit, hit Omaha, Nebraska in 1975, and we were, my brother-in-law and I were about 18 months into business, and our business was blown away. I was in New York when 9-11 happened. I've only lived in the United States, so I'm not asserting that America's, in this regard, is better than other countries, because may, it may be human nature, not just the way Americans are. But Americans, if somebody's in trouble, we like to help them. And when the tornado hit in Omaha in 75, and when Al-Qaeda attacked us in 2001, the city of Omaha and the city of New York became a community. We helped each other. Governments can't do it all without that impulse to help each other, help each other rebuild and volunteer time and contribute labor and contribute money if necessary. Government can't get it done. So before you ever get to what does a governor do, it's really important to understand that all the governor can do is connected to the willingness of the people themselves to help their neighbor and help somebody they don't even know get through the crisis, get through the challenge. And you've seen that now, I think, with COVID. The difference with COVID is we all have to stay inside. It's harder to help, but you don't have to look very far. You see it in the hospitals. You see it in the food banks. My goodness. You see heroic people 
helping, being willing to run a considerable amount of risk to help. And no crisis is solvable. No leader can ever get through a crisis without that willingness being there. Right. Well, you mentioned 9-11 crisis. Of course, you were one of 10 members appointed to the 9-11 Commission. And thinking about particularly recommendations out of that commission, are there any learnings there for us, Bob, in terms of the current crisis? Well, I think so. First of all, it was a very partisan time after 9-11. Maybe less partisan than it is today. I don't know. But it was partisan. The R's and the D's were at each other's throats. And they put together a commission that was chaired by two wonderful people, one a Democrat, Lee Hamilton, and one a Republican, Tom Kane. And we had no dissenting report, no dissenting opinions. It was a unified report. And we wanted it unified because we felt that the country needed to pull together as well. And as a consequence of Tom and, and Lee's leadership, and as a consequence of no minority reports, I think the impact was much, much greater. And remember, the 9-11 Commission was stood up after the House did their own examination, and the families of the men and women who were killed on that day, they didn't trust it. They didn't trust the conclusion. So the 9-11 Commission was set up to be a nonpartisan response to, first of all, tell the story, what happened, what was the nature of the conspiracy, how did we miss it? And then what do we need to do to reduce the chances, not to zero, you never get to zero in life, of it happening again. So it was the nature of Tom Kane and Lee Hamilton's leadership and the willingness of the commissioners to set aside what normally would have occurred, which is minority or dissenting opinions, that I think enabled the Congress to see this as something that they needed to act upon. But do you believe that a similar process in this case, that is a commission, should take place? Not now. I know I like Nancy Pelosi, but I think putting a commission together in the middle of this is not a good idea. I think we're better off waiting until a year or so we get beyond this thing. Because, look, one of the things I, uh, I think it's very important to understand with this virus is that you can't declare war on it. This is not a war. It's a virus. It's, a, it's an RNA virus. This virus has been around a long time, and we're not going to defeat it. We're not going to eliminate it. You're not going to get to a point like as we did with polio, where we vaccinated everybody and there's no danger any longer. We're going to have to learn how to live with it and how to adjust. And we're going to go through a period where our adjustments are going to be more extreme today than they're going to have to be a year or 18 months from now when everybody is tested. We know who's been infected and who hasn't been infected. We'll get through this, but I think we're going to be doing things differently than we were previously because nobody wants to die of an infection of this virus. It's not going to go away. And we're going to need to have much better collaboration between the state and the feds on public health issues. And I think you know, you're going to see fairly significant changes coming out of it. I think education is going to be different coming out of it. I think healthcare is going to be different coming out of it. I think our food delivery system is going to be different. We're going to, we're going to make changes. I mean, the, the big one that's kind of startling is the you know, the benchmark for, for oil went negative yesterday. They, could, they couldn't give the darn oil away. Why? We're not driving. We're not consuming as much gasoline as we were before. Now, I suspect we're going to go back to driving, but we might do it differently. I don't know. That's a great thing about living in a country where you're free to make your own decisions. They're going to change the way they buy things and the way they conduct their business. Certainly, if my assessment of it is correct, which is this virus can't be defeated. We're not going to have a celebration where no more smallpox 
victims occur in our country. This is a virus that's going to be hanging out with us, and it'll probably mutate and come back in a different form again. We're going to have to figure out how to live with it. Right. Do you think there's any chance that we'll form a new cabinet to oversee future health crisis as we did the Department of Homeland Security following 9-11? I don't think so. This is not a one-size-fits-all problem. I mean, that's what happened with banning elective surgery. The presumption that every hospital in America is going to get a rush of COVID-19 patients. Well, they didn't. There's some, New York, Massachusetts, Detroit, the places where there was a rush, Washington State. But for the most part, it hasn't happened. And even inside of the differential between what's going on in New York City and New York State, people need the freedom to respond differently, not by ignoring it, not by saying, oh, it's a hoax, it doesn't exist. It, it exists. It's a relatively lethal virus. And all it wants to do, I'm describing it as if it has a mind. It doesn't have a mind. Its whole motivation is to get inside and destroy our cells. And it loves the particularly like epithelial cells inside of our respiratory system. So ignoring it is a mistake. But trying to come up with a solution that everybody has to follow, I think, is not going to work either. In the Wall Street Journal article published today, one of the things you said I found it quite interesting was, quote, public officials live in fear of not doing enough. Could you dig into that a bit, Bob? <laughs> well, well, that's some personal experience. I mean, maybe the hardest thing in politics to do is somebody gets up in a town hall meeting and says, here's a problem. What are you going to do about it? And maybe the most difficult answer is nothing. Because there are times when nothing is the right answer. If the question is focused on what's the government going to do, because the government can make it worse. And I think banning elective surgery is a good example of a very well-intended decision, not by bad people, well-intended decision that was a costly one. The cost-benefit ratio was decidedly against benefit. I think the regional variation in the surge was one thing that nobody was expecting. And you make the point that probably most of the health systems in the country, albeit having COVID patients there, really could have continued to do elective surgery and perform urgent surgeries. That's the crux of your article. Yeah, although I want to emphasize that I think it's an even worse mistake to describe this as a non-existent hoax. It's a real virus. It's a virus that can be isolated. It's a virus that can be treated. It's a virus that can kill you. I understand why the political leaders would say, look, quarantine works. I mean, if you look at what happened in 1918, there's a great book John Berry wrote called The Great Influenza about 1918. And more people died in Philadelphia because the mayor ignored his public health people and allowed large gatherings to occur. And and the virus celebrated because it was a lot easier for the virus to get inside of the lungs when everybody's kind of hanging out together. So the, the worst thing would be to ignore it and to pretend that it doesn't exist. Because it'll travel. I mean, it was devastating to the 1918 influence. It was devastating to very, very remote Indian tribes in Alaska. So if you think, oh, I'm living on a mountaintop, I don't have to worry about it. Don't count on that. So ignoring it is even worse. But once you've identified it as a problem, you got to deal with it. I think the more you allow people to experiment and try to figure out what works, we're definitely going to need to do that as we move from mostly shut down to trying to, I wouldn't say get back to normal life, but get to a point where we feel comfortable that we can gather and we can engage in social activities without having to be afraid that I'm with Gary Bisbee and he's going to infect me with COVID-19 and I'm going to die. Is it frequently the case that states would be competing for those kinds of uh, critical resources? 
Well, I think it gets back to what you said at the beginning. I don't think we've ever had anything like this. I'm the governor of Nebraska, and my hospitals tell me we don't have enough personal protective equipment, or we don't have enough testing, or we don't have, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to get whatever I need in order to give my hospitals, my medical community, what they need in order to, to test and protect themselves when they're caring for people. So it's it's not so much competitive. I've heard it referred to as, as Darwinian. It's not Darwinian. You're just doing your job. And it's why you ask the question, do we need a federal authority? You may need one, I uh, may need to identify somebody that maybe already exists, some agency that already exists, and give them the authority and give them the money to get the protective equipment to deal with this particular virus or another one that comes down the road. That's why I say it's really important to see this as a virus that's going to be with us. There's no end point here where, oh, God, we're going to have a celebration. We've killed every single coronavirus 19 out there in the world. That's not going to happen. So it's likely that the governors and the federal agencies, three or four months from now, you go to the National Governors Association or the Western governors or Midwestern governors, and you say, what have you learned from this? Or what do you recommend we do to decrease this problem we had in this particular situation where we've got, you know, we're asking nurses and docs and, and allied professionals to show up and do their job, but they don't have the means to protect themselves. We don't want to do that again. My guess is those the governors and the and the federal agencies, are kind of, they'll, they'll have a solution. They'll say, okay, Here's what we did that was wrong. Here's what we need to do to make sure that that part of our response isn't going to happen again. And I see that governors in the East and the Midwest and the West are banding together in each of those regions to develop a regional approach to this. That would seem to be, sound like a good idea to facilitate the learning that you're talking about, right? Yes. In the West, for people that are involved with water management, they understand a thing called adaptive management. Take the Missouri River. You got eight or nine states that are in the Missouri River Basin. We agree that we're going to try to manage that river, not as if it's a fountain or something like that, but because it's very unpredictable. We don't know exactly what we're going to try. We're going to do A, B, and C to reduce the damage of flood, to increase the chances that we're going to have enough water available to our communities, but not too much. We need adaptive management to deal with, I think, a long-term response, public health response to this virus and others like it. By that, I mean, we agree we're going to do X, Y, and Z with the understanding that X might work, Y might work, but Z might not work. And if it doesn't work, we're not going to blame each other. We're going to tell the people we represent, you understand that we're not perfect. We tried X, Y, and Z. X worked, Y worked, and Z didn't. And it's probably, as you suggested earlier, X and Y work in, in some parts of Ohio and Y and Z work in others. It's, it's, it's not perfect. So I think what we have to have is coming out of this is not just the resources to keep our healthcare workers safe in an environment where they feel like they can do their work without putting their lives at risk. The political leadership has to agree and the public has to insist on it, that we're not going to blame each other. I may vote, I probably will vote against Donald Trump in November, but I'm not going to make the case that he was horrible, that he didn't care about him, all these mistakes. Whatever mistakes he made, we should learn from them. We should learn from whatever mistakes he made on the assumption that if we were in that position, We'd make mistakes too. It's through our mistakes that we learn how to do things better the next time. Right. Well, let's turn to the economy. Bob, you ran for president in 1992 when President Clinton became the comeback kid. And it was a time of meaningful recession that I'm sure deeply informed the political debate of the day. What were the key points of discussion during the campaign about the economy and the recession? First of all, we were coming out of the recession uh, shortly after the election. So 
if you're looking for who to get give credit for that recovery, you probably give it to George Herbert Walker Bush and his willingness to stand before the, the Congress, which was Democratic at the time, and say, I'll accept the tax increase if you guys will accept spending reductions. We passed a budget in 1990. We amended it in 93. We amended it in 97. I mean, George Herbert Walker Bush could take credit for balancing the budget. By the time Bill Clinton left office, we were paying off the debt. And I think that contributed to the economic recovery. There are a number of other things. We lowered the capital gains rate. But, you know, the economy goes through cycles. I would say the hottest of the political issues then, and it's only gotten hotter, is trade. Trade was, as you recall, the giant sucking sound was a phrase that was used by a lot by a third-party candidate who did exceptionally well. I think trade was probably the most contentious issue at the time. But as always, when you're going through economic difficulties like that, you're looking for solutions. And I think we found them. I give Bill Clinton a lot of credit, but the guy who started the process of moving us from a significant deficit to a, to a surplus was George Herbert Walker Bush. And because he did it, he wasn't reelected. I mean, there's no question that his support for a tax increase angered an awful lot of Republicans to whom he promised he would never do that. No new taxes read my lips. But I, I think his patriotism helped us get out of that recession. How do you see the economy influencing the election this November, Bob? It always does. If we had not been in a recession, Herbert Walker Bush gets reelected. And unfortunately for him, it started, the economy started to recover shortly after the election. So it'll have a big impact. And it's likely that we're going to have significant unemployment. The question is how much of that gets attributed to President Trump. And right or wrong, it tends to get attributed to the person in power. So I think it'll have an impact. I think it'll have an impact on the election. Now, the other thing that's going on is you can look at this whole pandemic crisis and all of a sudden you see this thing is global. This is not like 9-11 or even like the financial crisis. It, it became global, but this one began global. The question that I think is, at least on my mind, which is how does the pandemic affect broad support for globalism? And I think that there the key question is, how do we get trade agreements? How do we do immigration? How do we continue to invest in technology in a way that continues to lift the middle class? Because it hasn't worked for the middle class. And they're asking for something entirely different, uh, it seems to me. And I don't at the moment, I don't see, I think both parties are struggling to, to answer the question, how do we make globalism work besides just shutting it down? You, it's like you can't shut globalism down like shutting down gravity. So I think that's going to be a real challenge because all the multinational institutions that we put together after the Second World War, I think they need to be significantly reformed for a different purpose than what they were put together to do in 19. 45, 46, 47, 48. Well, one thing is for sure, if you talk to the CEOs of the health systems, they're all asking the questions about the global supply chain, particularly for life-saving equipment that they have not been able to get a hold of. And there's a lot of concern that we need to revisit the global supply chain for those critical items. Yeah, and I hear the same thing. It is necessarily going to be a response coming out of this because you can't deal with a pandemic if you've got to get all your mask and all your PPE outside the United States. We've done that with defense. With defense, we're not in a situation where we're reliant on a foreign power. In fact, we have specific laws. We can't export technology if it puts our capacity to defend ourselves at risk. So we'll probably, and we probably should, 
make certain that supply chain is protected. I don't think it leads to, it has to be manufactured inside the United States, but you do have to have supply chain protection otherwise, particularly for those critical items. It might not be important for band-aids, for water. I mean, some things where it won't be important, but for PPE, it'll be ventilators and those sorts of things, it'll be important going forward. And I'll repeat it, Gary. I mean, this virus is not going to disappear. We're not going to eliminate it. It's not going to, there's not going to be a, a signing ceremony of unconditional surrender. It's going to be with us. So we got to figure out how to uh, live with it. And I think one of the things is that we do is to make sure that supply chain is reliable. Let's turn back home to our veterans. You're highly informed, I'd say an expert on the VA. What's happening to the VA now as a result of the COVID crisis? Well, I'm not 100% certain. I'm not, I actually haven't read up or followed exactly what Dr. Stone is doing for VA health. I, I, I do think he's a first-rate administrator. And my guess is the challenges that he's having is comparable to, to other healthcare systems, except that he's got a very, I think he's got about seven or eight million veterans that use the VA health on a regular basis. They tend to be older and they tend to have a higher fraction of what's called comorbidities, people with type 2 diabetes, coronary artery diseases, and other sorts of uh, metabolic diseases, and they're at greater risk. So my guess is they're having to respond to that greater risk. And they probably had, like the rest of the country, certain parts of the country where there's, they haven't had any problems at all, and certain par- parts of the country where they have. So it's a fully contained system. The Choice Act allows veterans to move outside into either not-for-profit or for-profit healthcare systems. But they, it's still a $50 billion healthcare system that's largely self-contained to hire their own docs and nurses and nurse practitioners and physicians assistants, et cetera. So I don't know precisely what they're dealing with, but my guess is their number one problem is lots of patients that have comorbidities. For sure. And those patients are more susceptible to uh, yeah, serious illness. And the tragic story about what's going on in our long-term care facilities. I mean, it's, there are a number, I, I did see that there was a couple of facilities that were operated on behalf of veterans, some veteran, veterans' homes of some kind. So again, I think what we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have to do is learn from it, what happened. I'm sure they made, they did some heroic, wonderful things and they made some mistakes. So hopefully we can identify the mistakes and improve our performance the next time and be grateful for what we had in the beginning. So Bob, you've made reference several times to learnings that will inform the next crisis or the next pandemic. At what point do governors actually turn and spend time and resources thinking about that and preparing for the next pandemic? First of all, I think the public should take some comfort from knowing that the governors do learn from each other. There are two big governors conferences every year, one in February in D.C. where they meet with the president, and one in the summer where they all gather and learn from each other. They have an agenda, and I'll predict that COVID-19 and the pandemic will be top of the list of their discussions. There's a Western Governors Association, there's a Midwestern Governors Association, and lots of activity going on between the states all the time anyway, where they're trying to just trying to do a better job. Yet, do they compete for businesses? Do they, yes, they, they do compete, but there's a lot of collaboration going on with the governors. And I predict that it'll be at that governor's level where people are going to begin to understand what do we need to do to live with this virus and, and minimize the number of people who become casualties. So turning to health system governance, you're the lead director at Tenet, one of our largest health systems in the country. What's the role of the board in a major crisis like this with the large health system? It's a really good question. I mean, first of all, there's a legal standard of duty of care. You got to 
you know, you have to meet that legal standard by doing your work and, and reading the read aheads and asking the right questions of the CEO and making a judgment about whether that CEO is doing a good job or not. I would say that the, and it's probably true with other boards too, but particularly true with healthcare systems is that the priorities tend to shift. We're still concerned about our share owners and our stock performance, but you tend to shift your concern now over to your employees, your nurses, your doctors, the people that are out there on that front line taking care of people that are coming in. And you tend to think as well, sort of connected to that about your community. What does my community need in, in Palm Beach? What does my community need in, in Dallas, wherever the hospital is? Because all of our hospitals are community hospitals. I would say that your concern is still about your share owners, but I find myself spending more time in discussions with a, with a CEO What's going on with our employees? What's going on in our communities? What can we do to help? We've established a not-for-profit to help our own employees as well as our community. So I think the concern shifts more towards other stakeholders in the company, particularly employees and the community. So as lead director, what key responsibilities do you have or how do you see your priorities as lead director as opposed to one of the other directors? My view is a, a, a director needs to know not just what a director is supposed to do, but what a director is not supposed to do. I am not the CEO of Tenant. So the CEO asked me a detailed question. I'll, I'll attempt to answer it to the best of my ability, but uh, he's running the company. My job is to evaluate him and to work with him and help him, not to manage the, the company itself. And if I reach a conclusion that, that the CEO is not doing a good enough job and should be replaced, I have a duty to be the one that informs the board that I've reached that conclusion. So it's, it's a fine balance between making sure you know what's everything is going on and not stepping in and trying to act like you're the CEO. Speaking in general terms, not about tenant or any other specific health system, but one of the questions I'm being asked by trustees these days is what characteristics of a CEO should boards look for that will suggest strong performance during a crisis? The key word in your question was suggest, because you can never be certain. I mean, you can look at plenty of men and women who look on paper to be a great CEO, and they just can't do the job. You're forced all the time to be making critical decisions. And you've got to be able to acknowledge when you make a mistake. Because if you don't, what happens? You get paralyzed, you don't make any decisions. It's no small set of responsibilities that a CEO has. Secondly, they have to be able to lead. By that, I mean the the employees have to feel inspired. They're being respected. And it's typically the little things, not the big things. It's not necessarily, well, how much is my comp going up this year? But does the CEO respect what I'm doing? Does he understand what I'm doing? Does he understand the challenges that I'm facing? So he or she's got to, obviously, in a crisis, be able to respond. And there, as I say, you never know. I could have a great CEO, and she's terrific, and everything is going fine. And in this crisis, I just pick something grim. Her husband, three of her children die. Now, don't expect that person to be able, maybe she can. She's a human being too. And she's going to be struggling with this crisis. What's going on in her life will matter. So all you can do is look at it and get outside references and talk to other people that know them and, and then push a little bit. How do they do when the bottom drops out? Every CEO is going to face it. You don't have very many businesses that you look at the graph and it just goes upward to the right all the time. There's never a moment when the, when the graph drops down to the right. And now we're, we're going through a big crisis. We went through a big crisis in 2008 and 9, and 
we'll get through this one. And they, I, what I'm certain of is there'll be another one somewhere down the road. And maybe they can handle it. Maybe they can't. It's not the end of the world if they can't handle it. You just have to have, as a board member, you have to pony up and say, if they're not doing the job, I got to replace them. It's not an easy thing to do, but it's enormously important thing that a board member has to do. Are there similar characteristics to a successful CEO and a successful governor? Similar, except that you've got a much different constituency group you're working with. You get elected as governor. You get selected as a, as a CEO. I always tell people that a CEO can be a benevolent dictator because we have a democracy. A governor can't be a benevolent dictator as a consequence of our democracy. It's a different set of constituencies, and it's important to understand them. So somebody says to me, well, I was CEO. I, I can be governor. No, it's, a, it's different. It's not the same thing. You don't tell people what to do when you're governor. You have to persuade them that what you want to do is the right thing. And, you know, you could find yourself saying, this is brilliant. I have this genius idea. And you propose it to your legislature and 10 percent of your House and Senate members support it. And maybe the public doesn't support what you want to do. I mean, I've had many, many ideas that I thought were brilliant that that nobody else liked. Well, if you're CEO, it's a lot easier to put them in place. Than it, is if you're, than it is if you're governor. Thinking about, again, politics in the fall, we covered that a bit earlier, but I'm thinking now about the whole mobile voting, and I know you've been supportive of the mobile voting project, and that picture we saw in the newspapers recently of the huge lines in Wisconsin. Do you think that we'll see a move toward mobile voting and see it in time for the fall elections? Oh, I hope so. By the fall elections, I doubt it. People are, oh, my God, the Russians are going to hack in. You know, somebody else is going to hack in. I don't know. The Chinese are going to hack in. But we probably have, I don't know, four or five million secure phone calls and communications through the Internet by national security people every single year. So it's a manageable problem. And I think eventually we'll do it. I think we'll come up with a way to do it in a secure way. I think you'll get greater participation if you do it. But most importantly, we'll have an efficient election. I don't think we're ready for it now. The test case is actually going to be Congress because Congress is sitting in a situation where 530, their average age is 60. But I know Leader McConnell doesn't like the idea of letting them vote remotely, but I think they're going to have to do it. It's one thing to put members of Congress at risk, but they can't function without their staff. So they may have to figure out a way to do this. That stimulus bill that they passed was $2.2 trillion or whatever it was. They passed it by unanimous consent. They didn't vote. I don't think either they or the public is going to tolerate that kind of decision making without an active debate and amendments being offered and careful examination of the legislation occurring, which you get with them gathering 535 of them in the well of the Senate, the well of of the House. Their staffs are there running all over the place. Think of the public. The public doesn't get access to them. If you want to get a hold of your senator or your House member, you've got to knock on their door. You've got to go visit them in the home. You've got to call them on the phone. Well, that's inadequate. I think. And I hope they don't open it up just to say, well, we want to get back in business if there's an alternative. And there's definitely an alternative. Congress could easily set up a secure voting from a distance. And I hope they do, because otherwise they're going to put both themselves and their staff at risk. Seems likely sometime over the next several years that that'll happen, doesn't it? Well, I hope it happens over the next several weeks. It would not be that difficult to do it. They could go over the National Security Agency and give them the, the assignment of doing it. And they'd They'd put a system together immediately. They do it all the time. I mean, it would not be that difficult to set it up. The alternative is nobody actually examining the legislation, nobody actually voting, or worse, 
you push them back into those rooms in a premature way and put them at risk. On another topic, given the cost of the current crisis to the federal government, I'm thinking back to the Kerry Danforth Commission on Entitlement Reform. <laughs> any any thoughts or learnings from that that you'd want to suggest to the current Congress? Oh, you, you know the story of the, the, the Rip Van Winkle story? Yeah, but feel free to share right, so it. Washington Irving wrote this story in the early 1800s, and the whole story was to talk about how things had changed how dramatically things had changed. And so Rip Van Winkle goes up to the mountain. When he goes up to the mountain, King George is, there's pictures of King George all over the place because we were a colony of the, the British. When he comes down from the mountaintop, there's pictures of George Washington. So what happened? We're dealing with that now. Senator Danforth and I co-chair the Concord Coalition. I don't know what to say about a $3 trillion deficit. What I do know is that's all borrowed money. And what I know about borrowed money is eventually you got to pay it back. And at a minimum, you got to pay the interest on those bonds. And I, my guess is coming out of this thing, the, the first time interest rates go up a bit, the interest on the national debt is going to be the largest item in the budget. Oh, without question. And, and you don't get anything for it. I'm, I'll bet you two years from now, interest on the national debt's, I don't know, $800 billion a year. And you say, what do I get for eight? And I get that $800 billion with taxes on American taxpayers. What do I get for that? You don't get anything other than what we got to get out of this crisis. So I know at some point we're going to have to deal with it. But right now, it's like a while ago, the, it looked like the Republican Party was going to attack Democrats for being socialists. And after the stimulus bill, we're all socialists. It's like, je suis socialiste. We were all, you know, we've all become... <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, we'll be back talking to you about learnings from the Kerry Danforth Commission, I'm sure. It's just, we can't avoid that. But on to your personal background, most people, I would say, don't realize that you were a pharmacy major at University of Nebraska. Why pharmacy, Bob? I love pharmacy, particularly pharmacology. It's changed a lot, uh, but I like it. I like the science of pharmacology and pharmacography. I like them both. You didn't want to pursue that as a career? Well, no. My joke is the government decided that a higher and better use of my skills was to make me a member of SEAL Team 1. No, we had a little thing called the draft. And I passed my physical and they told me I was about ready to be drafted by the Army. I had just read Herman Wokes, The Cane Mutiny, and volunteered for the Navy. Went through officer candidate school and underwater demolition looked like a lot of fun. So I volunteered for that. And the next thing I know, I'm in SEAL Team. My life is one moment of serendipity after another. And that, that must be maybe the most important one I had. Well, thank you for your service. What gave you inspiration to run for governor in Nebraska? Well, probably just generalized belief and value of service. I was raised in a Christian church and we were taught that it's better to give than receive. And I can give you lots of examples to demonstrate that case. I believe that if you're afraid of losing something and you're constantly holding on to things and only care about yourself, if you forget the golden rule, it's have to be that you're going to have a difficult life no matter how much money you got. I believe in service and I had enough experience with the government because I've been in business for 10 years and you got to get permission from the government at a variety of different agencies. So I'd worked with political leaders and in 82 when I ran, there was a number of people who were on the Democratic side, thinking about running, they all came by to see me and told me why they were going to run. And then none of them ran. And they kind of talked me into it. So there was a number of things that I wanted to do. And I thought I could be pretty good at it. And I thought I would enjoy it. And, and I wasn't disappointed. Plenty of mistakes, plenty of things I do differently. But all in all, I got more than I gave. 
Looking back on it, what was the most important accomplishment during your term? Oh, in the event that somebody that's thinking about becoming a candidate for office is listening, I would say the most important thing are, are small. There's a lot of power in the office of the governor, a lot of power in the office of Senate. And if you recognize that power and make sure you never abuse it and never let anybody working for you abuse it, you can use that power and change people's lives just by helping them a little bit with a problem that they have with the, with the government, the problem that they're having with the, their corporation, or in my case, because I'm a, was a, at that point, relatively well-known amputee, I visited people who were suffering trauma in hospitals. And it wasn't like I could do anything for them necessarily, but I had the experience of having volunteers come to see me when I was in the hospital in Philadelphia. I knew how important it was to have somebody just lay a hand on you and say, I, I care about you. I want you to get better. So the, the little stuff is what's most important. I mean, Men and women who were involved in my campaign became friends for the rest of their life. Some of them get, you know, they, they got married and had kids, and they wouldn't have met and gotten married and had kids were it not for the campaign. It's the little stuff that I value the most. In terms of the impact on the state, it's probably the financial reforms that we put in place, how to budget, how to set tax rates, how to protect the pensions so they don't get ripped off by people wanting to get, the, get access to that money. I mean, there was a number of financial reforms that we put in place that I know have had a long-lasting positive impact on the state. But the one thing that, again, in the event somebody's listening to you, you got to be very careful not to really care if anybody remembers. I can take you to places in Nebraska and say, you know, you know why this exists? You know why this road is here? This park is here? This thing? It's here because somebody that I don't know that you don't know cared about it and helped build it. So it's, it's not an exaggeration to say we stand on the shoulders of the people that came before. And it was a lot harder to be governor in the first 20 or 30 years of the state. It was a lot harder to be governor during the Depression. So there are a lot of things that I benefited from, the most important of which is we have a spectacular capital that was built with cash during the Depression with Bertram Goodhue, one of the world's finest architects and design of it. You think, how is it possible they built this thing and they built it to last forever? They didn't build it to survive a depreciation schedule. So on to the Senate, how would you compare being a senator to being a governor? It's different. First of all, it's healthier being governor. You're home all the time. And when you're away from home, it's harder. You're, you're away from your kids. You have to make more mistakes when you're not at home. But on the other hand, it's, again, like the Navy, it's the United States Senate. And it matters. U.S. law matters. What a senator says matters, both good and bad. You're voting on war powers resolutions. You're voting on things that affect all 50 states, all 330 million Americans can be affected by a single vote, a single speech. So what you're left with is a, a sense of the power of this country and the value of the Republican form of government we have. And it does put you in a position to be able to help people understand it may be a terrible system, but it's better than anything else. It gives you an appreciation for the difficulty, but the genius of the idea that we can govern ourselves. Governor, we very much appreciate your time. Let's land here. Thank you again. We'll enjoy listening to this podcast many times. I look forward to seeing you again. Thanks, Thanks, Bob. This episode of Fireside Chat is produced by Stratfire. Please subscribe to Fireside Chat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Be sure to rate and review Fireside Chat so we can continue to explore key issues with innovative and dynamic healthcare leaders. In addition to subscribing and rating, we have found that podcasts are known through word of mouth. We appreciate your spreading the word to friends or those who might be interested. Fireside Chat is brought to you from our nation's capital in Washington, D.C., where we explore the intersection of healthcare politics, financing, and delivery. 
For additional perspectives on health policy and leadership, read my weekly blog, Bisbee's Brief. For questions and suggestions about Fireside Chat, contact me through our website, firesidechatpodcast.com, or gary at hmacademy.com. Thanks for listening.